Hi, and welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Art Scoping is a podcast featuring innovative leaders from the cultural world, ranging from designers to artists to writers to curators. It's a pleasure to spend some time today speaking with Sarah Urist-Green, host of The Art Assignment, a weekly PBS Digital Studios production, which has attracted over 23 million views since its debut. The series premiered in 2014 with episodes introducing us all to emerging and established artists, each of whom share an assignment related to their approach to art. These episodes serve as open calls for makers across the globe, and thousands of artworks have been created and shared in response to the assignments. Sarah is the former Curator of Contemporary Art at the Indianapolis Museum of Art, where she organized the exhibitions Graphite and Andy Warhol Enterprises, among others, and commissioned installations by Spencer Finch, William Lanson, Ball Noga Studio, and Kate Gilmore. She holds a Master of Arts in Modern Art History from Columbia University and a Bachelor of Arts from Northwestern University. Welcome, Sarah. Hello, Max. So good to talk to you. Same here. Glad to find you, I hope, in reasonably good health. Yes, healthy, um, uh, physically, psychologically, a little, <laughs> a little un unsure about that situation, but doing fine. Good. COVID-19 is, of course, disrupting both the world and that unusual nature preserve we call the art world. So tell us a bit about how the art assignment removes the velvet rope for your viewers. So when I first started the art assignment in late 2013 and early 2014, I was really looking for a way to speak to the YouTube community, to the younger generations of people who were eager to learn on an online platform. So I started to think about ways that I could talk about the things that interested me about art. Artists, their ideas, sort of how we reach back into art history to understand what's happening today. And so I started to make videos that really try to speak honestly and openly and without a lot of pretense to the YouTube audience. And I try to do that by speaking plainly and not with a lot of jargon. And I also try to really think about the ideas that might connect with them. I make a wide variety of videos and I talk with the audience in the comments and I sort of see what sticks and I see what ideas really sort of excite and engage them. And it's been a really fruitful platform for me. You and your family have called Indianapolis home for many years, which calls itself the crossroads of America. The work you've been doing has reached the world from Indianapolis on a very addictive digital platform, which I gather reaches about a third of the annual attendance of North America's leading art museums. So my question to you as an adoptive Hoosier is, how liberating is it to have switched gears to being a YouTube superstar without having to live in a cramped Brooklyn apartment? It's really freeing to be able to live here. I have a great life here. There's a low cost of living. Both my husband, um, the writer John Green, and I have found Indianapolis to be a really productive place to make work and sort of think freely without sort of these loud voices around us that might question what we're doing. It's also really good during this time of COVID-19. It's actually, you know, we can't go into our production studio or office here, but there's a lot we can do from here. Um, and it's really sort of underscored the importance of distance learning and, and what I'm trying to do. 
I always try to remember that it's such a small sliver of the world that is able to travel to see all the best exhibitions and go to the fairs. And most people are, you know, who are still curious about that world and who are truly interested in art and complex ideas live all over the place. And I think this time, as we see how it influences after COVID, because I'm, I'm assuming there will be an after. Uh, but I'm curious to see how much remains. Like, will the online art fairs continue to be as robust as they will be during this time? I think that the audience for art is so much wider than the more insular parts of the art world assume it to be. The Toledo Museum of Art attracts about half a million visitors, and yet the population of Toledo is about the same. And so I describe them as the best attended art museum in the United States. Because in effect, you have to look at the catchment. You have to look at the available audience for the experience of visual art in person to say what's feasible and what's reasonable and what's successful. Right. If you look at my channel on YouTube, The Art Assignment, in comparison to some other art channels, the audience is large. And I'm, I'm very proud of our audience. But if you look at it in comparison to YouTubers, and you understand how huge the potential online audience is, it's, it's piddly, it's tiny. And I'm not, I'm not trying to reach absolutely everyone, but the lessons that are the same between creating content about art online and creating experiences of art within physical communities are that you have to work at building those communities. You know, the Toledo Museum has wonderful efforts um, in many ways to bring those people in. And I think what frustrates me is when people come up with these art experiences, either in person or online, and think that that's the major thing. But you have to, you have to build the community, you have to get people there, and it's not enough just to open the door. Along those lines, when we read in the art newspaper these annual surveys of the best attended exhibitions, and things notch up and down like some box office sales statistic. I always remember, that's great, but there's still 7 billion people in the world. So the, the incremental gain or loss of a couple hundred thousand people isn't actually existential. Right. We need, we need to work on bigger issues like expanding the audience for art um, in general and, and think about ways that we can reach people where they are and, and bring them in. Well, that's what you're doing. And what you're doing in part is so seditious also, because you are separating art selling from art making, which is heretical, Sarah. And <laughs> tell us a bit about what inspires you to think that way as a curator and a thinker and a doer in the art world. Well, the art market gets so much press, but it has so little impact on most people. And a lot of people are truly interested in art and curious about the ideas that it raises, but think that the art market is utterly absurd. And I, I hear a lot of people complain about that via YouTube. I like a lot of parts of the art market. I really do. There are wonderful gallerists. There are wonderful people at all levels of the art market. But the market, at least before this COVID crisis, has been so inflated that it can focus on such a small portion of society. I try to separate the two just to remind people that when they look at the newspaper, they may see most art headlines focusing on the market, but there is so much more there. 
I know that they are uh, intertwined, art making and art selling. And that is the way that it is and the way that it should be. But I think to actually talk to people about art, it's not that helpful to focus so much on the market. I think there are more and more voices in the field. I think there are more individual voices that are being amplified on the social internet. And I think that who is influencing art is is widening. And I think that's a good thing. Do I think that the inflated nature of the art market and the outsized influence that galleries have on scholarship is dangerous? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I do. <laughs> but I also think, again, it's important to keep it in perspective. What I'm trying to do and what I'm hoping that more and more people will do is to find spaces to discuss art, to elevate different types of art, and to sort of create a canon for the future that is is not so heavily influenced by money and billionaires. In your infancy, you grew up in Alabama, right? And yeah. tell us a bit about the perspective that affords you. And I'm also especially curious about the encounter you had with Lonnie Holly, who's an artist well represented in the Souls Grown Deep Foundation. Sure. Um, yeah, I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, to parents who were not Southerners. So I was always kind of an outsider, even though I lived there from the age of one to 18. I really enjoyed sort of getting to know art and starting to form my own understanding of it in that community. Because the Birmingham Museum of Art was a wonderful place to be introduced to lots of types of art in their collection, but they also focused a lot on what is called outsider art, or that's a whole other discussion. They well represented and supported the artist Lonnie Holly, who at the time went by the name The Sandman. A lot of his work, and still today, is so focused on education, and I was part of a workshop for, for young students, for kids, with Lonnie Holly, where he presented us each with a block of this um, sandstone material that he often made carvings out of at the time. And he was extremely memorable as a character. The way he dressed, the way he spoke, the way he moved around the room, just he's the most engaging uh, and wonderful artist, still is. And he really respected us as kids, which is so rare. I think it's a lot of art classes for kids are very patronizing, but he really taught us to look at this material and to play with it and to make our own sculptures from it um, in a way that was very respectful. And it, it stuck with me. So I was really excited to ask him to contribute to the book that I am publishing um, that is coming out on April 14th called You Are an Artist. And he has come up with an assignment that uh, is not carving sandstone, but it's great. Among the dozens of videos you've done for Art Assignment, you've done road trips and tackled the nettlesome questions of those asking about the sanity of contemporary artists. You've profiled individual artists and decoded art speak jargon. And recently, you explained the sale of a banana duct tape to a wall for the memorable price of $150,000. Curious here, do you have a dream episode that you haven't yet produced but would love to? There's still so much to do. I do, within our art trip series, I would really like to um, make a video of an experience of Rodin Crater, 
James Turrell's uh, much fabled piece. And so I'd really like to do that. And I hope I hope to make that happen at some point when travel is feasible again. But the episode that I would really like to make that I don't think I ever will is about copyright and fair use. <laughs> it is um, it is something that I have very strong feelings about and I think impacts the way that people are sort of allowed and not allowed to talk about art and discuss it and give it a free life in the world. So that that is something that I would like to cover, but I don't think I'm going to be able to. Are you a Creative Commons kind of person? Oh, very much. Very much a Creative Commons. Um, you, know, you might I, explain what that is to some of our listeners who don't know. Um, so Creative Commons, and actually, Max, you might describe it better, but it's a do you want to take a stab at that? Well, broadly, it is a format in which copyright may still be retained by the maker, but it is allowing the user to take advantage in different stages of that material, whether it's for commercial use at the most extreme, to simply reuse without any obligation other than acknowledgement. And so it's effectively turning copyright law on its head. Instead of starting with protection of the copyright, it's beginning with how far can we open this up for consumption and use? Precisely. I am friends with a lot of artists. I believe that their their work, their good work should be protected. But when I am presented with the problem of do I make a video about a particular artist, if it's going to cost me thousands of dollars to simply show an image of their work on a screen for three to five seconds at a time, it's a hard thing to weigh, and it disappoints me that more institutions and more rights holders aren't opening up their digital presences to more audiences. Oh, it's a great point, and it's one that affects particularly the art of the 20th century, and less so, obviously, the rest of art history, which you have delved into in great depth, including an episode about masterpieces in which you explored the notion of the canon, the accepted standard against which all other art used to be compared. Is there going to be a canon for 21st century art? And if so, who's going to sort it out? I think there are many canons is the short answer. I think there's a canon for people who circulate in the upper echelons of the art world and, you know, are very much involved in the art market. I think there's a, there's a canon of artists who can attain certain prices at auction and then there's another canon of artists who are knowable in the world outside of that world. Think about an, an artist like Banksy, who, who has a much greater reach into the world than some of the artists whose work fetches multi-millions at auction. I think you know, there will be a canon. We don't know yet who will be part of it. And uh, I think that's what's exciting for me about working in the field of contemporary art is that that isn't determined yet and that other people can be part of that discussion and make those decisions. Well, with the breadth of what you've already recorded, you're disrupting that model by presenting artists who aren't known through the gallery system yet or who aren't present in major city centers. And in a way, I think you're starting to create that canon. I, I'm hoping so. But I also think, um, and I, I think this is, might be a point that we disagree on, you know, I, I find quality to be a very subjective discussion <laughs> and a phenomenon. And I, I, I wonder what you think about that. And you did one episode about this around the premise of masterpieces, that some 
objects do is sustain themselves through different periods and different fashions and tastes and maybe inexplicable about why that is, but they touch a certain human connection that endures in the face mm -hmm. of a lot of cultural change and a lot of attitudinal shifts. But yeah, I think we might disagree. That would be exciting some other time. <laughs> you did an episode titled My Top 40 Art Reflections and included the observation that the art world might feel like middle school. So please explain. <laughs> well, I think as somebody who wanted to be in some way involved in the art world from a young age and then arrived there, um, it was a bit of a shock to me to go to Art Basel Miami Beach or the Venice Biennale and be around grown-ups who were asking each other which parties they were going to go to or what they got invited to or looking over shoulders at who the more important people in the room were. And I think it was a bit of a reality check that people have in many fields. I mean, finance is not immune to this either. But I think when people outside of the upper art echelons imagine it, they think of it as this place with rarefied air and highly evolved people, but they're just, they're just people. <laughs> and right. some of them, some of them are petty or some of them are petty sometimes. Uh, so I think it's important not to, not to put those people and those worlds up, up too high on a pedestal. We had an upfront view of that in 2011. We and did. When your colleague, Lisa Fryman, who was head of the contemporary department at the Indianapolis Museum was the commissioner for the United States Pavilion and the installation by Loren Calzadilla took place. And we saw the extraordinary appetite of well-placed art world people to get into that pavilion before others. We did, we did. And um, how, how do you think, or, or do you think that the art world feels like middle, middle school sometimes? I think high school perhaps <laughs> also. Now you had another suggestion in Art Reflections, which was to acknowledge the guard in the gallery in a museum. Tell us, what's the most intriguing fact you've learned from a museum guard? Well, actually in the, the Indianapolis Museum of Art, where we both used to work, there was a guard who was stationed in the James Terrell installation, a work that was part of his Space Division series. And the work is basically a hole in a wall. And when you enter the room, you don't know what you're looking at necessarily, unless you're deeply familiar with the work of James Terrell, which most people who visit art museums are not necessarily. When you look at it, you think it might be like a flat gray painting on the wall. And it's only after you spend time in the space and your eyes adjust and you start to make sense of the room around you that you realize that it is a hole in the wall and it's another space behind that hole that you can experience. And there uh, used to be a guard station who was sometimes stationed in there who would tell visitors to hold their hands out in front of them and walk toward the hole <laughs> and um, to then sort of grasp what it was. And I remember at the time when I was working as a curator there, several of us were actually quite upset about this <laughs> because for a Terrell, you're really supposed to figure it out for yourself. But the more that I think about it, sort of in retrospect, the more that I think what that guard was doing was really wonderful, because I, I would love to see some statistics on how many people would walk into that room, not understand it, think like, what is this? 
and throw up their hands and walk out of the room. And the guard was like actually trying to get them to engage with it. And, you know, for someone who might want to experience it on their own, maybe it was a little bit frustrating. But in the end, you know, that guard was really trying to get people to grasp the work, to understand what it was. So I think that's the bit that that, that particular guard passed along to me. There's a natural instinct on the part of people to see someone in a uniform and consider them the other, when in fact they're watching and listening what you're saying and often have great insights as you're, as you're observing. It raises another topic, Sarah, which is something we don't talk about, we're not allowed to talk about in the art world, which is class. Right. The greatest burden falling on the art world is on the people who actually make it tick in mm -hmm. respect to art handlers and curators and educators and the frontline personnel who keep the place humming. I'm curious what you think about class in the art world. So uh, a major concern for me with the support of very, the very wealthy toward their own private collections or, you know, bolstering um, the abilities of, say, galleries to create scholarship and to have bigger, better exhibitions are that our museums desperately need support. So, you know, while it's wonderful to go visit a private collection by a billionaire to see what they've done, and yes, they do open them up to the public sometimes, I think that now more than ever, supporters of art really need to focus on their institutions, the ones that they believe in, whether they're local or national or international, near or far. Those places now and moving forward are going to desperately need um, more support to make the class divide uh, less extreme and to reach other audiences. An institution serving a community and being truly public, that's a very critical part of this whole art organism um, functioning in a healthy way. I implore everyone um, who is not uh, already employed by an institution or involved with one in some way to, to support your institutions through this and advocate for those who aren't necessarily the most powerful in an institution. Well, Sarah, I had a question about the academy. You pursued a graduate degree. You have the extra training that accrues from that. But I'm watching with interest as the academic world is in a bit of disarray as well. Where do you see training in art history at the graduate level these days? I think that, you know, in my education, I got a master's in art history and not a PhD. And part of that is that I had this distinct feeling throughout my, my education that a lot of the things I was learning were very important to know and great ideas and really wonderful food for thought, but they weren't necessarily making me a better communicator. While at Columbia, I had a fantastic experience and learned a ton, but I just had this fear that the longer I spent there, the more diminished my capacity would be to communicate with a wider public. So to me, you know, what I, what I really hope for academia, especially with art history, but really in all fields, is that the system of how tenure is granted and how professors are sort of evaluated and promoted sort of reaches beyond the old model. Because I know in working in online educational video, a lot of historians and scholars in different fields who would like to create online free educational video and pour their efforts, at least in part, into that 
that does not become part of the tenure discussion. And it really should be. The goal should be to effectively communicate your ideas and, and engender discussion about the topics that are relevant to you and your institution. And when creating, say, a web series about your field isn't part of that evaluation, it's absurd. I really hope that in the future, academia can sort of admit how much the landscape for communication about the arts um, and other fields has already changed and, and really work that into their new systems. Yes, I keep thinking of St. Jerome and his study with the lion at his feet. Mm -hmm. And that's the model that endures in academic distinction is you're, you're supposed to be that guy by yourself, yeah. creating an isolation and then reveal to the world your wisdom. And that's right. not how the world is today. Right. And, and that guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. You speak of communication, Sarah. You've taken it to a new level, obviously, with the art assignment. And now with a new book. When I, uh, when I started the web series, The Art Assignment, it began with the premise that I would travel around the country visiting artists and asking them to give out an assignment to the audience that is somehow based on their practice. Uh, and then each of these episodes that were based around interviews with the artists served as an open call for people to respond to the assignments and post what they made on their social media platform of choice. Um, so from the beginning, I had sort of thought, okay, I'm traveling around, I'm gathering these assignments from artists all over, I'm going to make these videos, it's going to be great. But in the back of my head, I kept thinking, like, I really want to make these into a book also. I love the online experience, I love learning visually and through video, but I think there's so much to be said for having a physical book in your hands. So. I took 40 of the 60 assignments that um, I gathered for the web series to include in this collection that is You Are an Artist, and then I added 13 new assignments commissioned from artists to that. So it, it's a resource for people who um, may consider themselves an artist or may not, and they're all assignments that don't require you to buy traditional materials for art making, but you can often use things around your house or your phone or the clothes in your closet. And so it's really sort of based on the idea of learning by doing and providing new ways for people to connect with the many diverse ways that art is being made today. Well, Sarah, I know you've got a lot on the fly back home to work on. So I want to thank you for making time for the conversation. And thank you very much for the insights you're bringing to us on The Art Assignment, a weekly PBS Digital Studios production. Thank you so much, Max. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. <laughs>